Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. This week, I'm joined by Dr. Byungul Chung. He goes by Bill. He's the practice owner of Women's Healthcare of Woburn in Massachusetts in the eastern United States, founder of Women's Only Organics, and co-founder of Doc and Doula. In this episode, we're going to focus on the state of women's healthcare in the United States, where Bill is one of the country's highest rated obstetricians and gynecologists, or as they are styled over there, OBGYNs. Now, I worked in the USA for many years, and every time I heard OBGYNs as an abbreviation, I always, for some reason, thought of Obi-Wan Kenobi. They certainly have magical, they certainly have magical powers. Bill is a Korean-American immigrant, and he moved to America at the age of 12. He completed his medical degree at the Ohio State University, and he worked at Boston City Hospital, now styled as the Boston Medical Center during his residency. Bill's worked within communities north of Boston for about 25 years and is the leading provider of minimally invasive robotic surgery throughout New England. That's an area of huge interest to me, so I'm really looking forward to chatting to him. Bill also hosts his own podcast, The Bill Chun Show, where he shares the stories of his fellow immigrants and discusses parenthood, the immigrant experience, the healthcare system in the US of A, and the challenges that modern life brings. I heartily encourage you to check it out. I certainly did. So it's a big treat to have Bill here with us today, and I'm certainly looking forward to hearing more about uh, his career and hopes for the future of healthcare. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Bill Chuck. Doctor, thank you so much. It's a privilege and honor to be with you. And really talking about robotic system is tickling because as you know, robotic surgery is really the future and has changed the field of gynecology for good. Unfortunately, not everyone understands it, but great topic. So thank you. Yeah, you're, you're most welcome. Listen, so from one podcaster to another, from one person interested in robotics to another, you know, our duty of care is, is to do the very best we can for our patients. We're all going to be patients sooner or later, but Anything that we can do to lead to better outcomes, it, it, it's inherent to, upon us to do those things. So you, you said that you were born to be an OBGYN. What, what first inspired you to get into this field? So to give a little background, I was born to a teenager. So my mother got pregnant at the age of 15. She had me at 16 with no prenatal care and had only my grandmother to attend the birth. And this was only a few years after the Korean War ended. And I was raised by primarily by my grandmother um, with a bit of input from my mother. And I think with me, for the bulk of my life, I've been influenced by women. And when I entered medical school, and trying to choose a particular field, the, this woman's health is something I really became attracted to, became passionate about. And if I put together my past few decades, how I started, home birth, no attendant, to where I am right now, where the world of obstetrics in the United States is at best chaos, 
And I think I got to appreciate the full spectrum of women's health. So my answer to the question when asked, why did I become an OBGYN? I think the answer evolved over time. And for me, it's my humble beginning that gave me the ground work, if you will, then to immigration with being raised by a single mother to medical training. It, it fits that I was born to be a woman's health physician because I think one thing that, as you, I'm sure, will agree, the biggest thing about medicine is communication, having that passion, empathy. And my life experience gave me enough training and tools to appreciate what one is needed to be an effective woman's healthcare provider. So that's what I mean by that. Um, you said something that um, you dropped a bomb. You said, at best, um, obstetrics in America is chaos. What, what did you mean by that comment, Bill? So when I went through training at Boston City Hospital, the cesarean section rate was 13%. This is 1990. And going back... 13, 13, one, three or one, 30? One, three. One, three, 13. Okay. Going back to 1970s, prior to just when epidural became part of obstetrical medicine in the U.S., the rate was actually only 5%. Now, in 2023, one out of three women will undergo a cesarean section. One out of three women will undergo induction of labor. Why is that? It's a combination of things, including that we practice medicine based on liability. It is more reactive medicine rather than preventive medicine. And it's based on money. I mean, it's simple money, money, money. I say that because if I am a CEO of a particular hospital, the, diff the monetary difference between 100 vaginal delivery and cesarean section patients between 20 some thousand dollars per vaginal delivery to 50 plus thousand dollars per cesarean section, it's two to three million dollars for every 100 birth. If I am a financial person, I need that revenue, especially with pandemic. So there is no major incentive from hospitals and from doctors because doctors get paid more for C-section and 88% of births in this country are attended by physicians and only 12% by midwives. So the trend is out of control. In addition to that, American population as a whole is not healthy. The obesity rate is nearing 50%. So we are dealing with the population that is not healthy and also women are delaying having babies until later. So unhealthy, older population with a significant increase in anxiety, put that all together and with monetary influence, then you have what we have right now. And finally, there's a shortage of OBGYNs. We don't have enough OBGYNs in this country. So half the counties, so imagine Boston being in Middlesex County or Worcester and Worcester County. Half the counties in this country do not have a single OBGYN. So there's a 
significant inadequate distribution of health care unless you live in the West Coast, the East Coast, or other large metropolitan areas, there are no OBGYN to go to. Now, I, I just want to, I, I'm a bit confused because, yeah, I'm, I'm very familiar with the American healthcare system. It's a profit-based healthcare system. Uh, but I, I could be wrong, but I think in most of Europe, it's about 30%. Uh, which astounded me when I saw the statistic. And I thought, it, is it because we have a, you know, unfortunately obesity is a problem over here. It's not as bad as America, but it's heading in that direction. And I thought that may be due to it. It may be due to, um, you know, uh, not as healthy a population, um, growing immigrant populations, um, putting, you know, with stresses on the healthcare system. But, do you know about that? Well, what about South Korea? Your the, you know, your your heritage. What it's it's apparently got a superb healthcare system. What, what are the rates over there? It's pretty high, and in South Korea, it is a nationalized healthcare, but with a private insurance, it's still done. And I think a lot of physicians perform surgery again for monetary reason. Coming back to America. Because the population is unhealthy, now we're talking about increased risk of diabetes and hypertension. Yeah. Those two alone then require early intervention, induction of labor. With increased induction of labor, you increase the risk of a cesarean section. And there was a rather infamous trial out of 2018 which recommended elective induction at 39 weeks for first-time moms. And that particular paper really drove this new trend for elective induction at 39 weeks. But what happened is we had this thing called pandemic. So there's a huge shortage of manpower. So what I see is past few years really has been an eye-opener in that Women's health in this country, at least in obstetrics, is not headed the right way. There's no big plan by American College of OBGYN, American Medical Association, CDC, or anyone to have something in place because what's happening is there's got to be a reason why our maternal and infant mortality rate is the highest among the wealthiest nation, even though we spend the most money on healthcare than anyone else. Because the number we're talking about primarily affects women of color. So it really is related to lack of adequate health care, as well as other socioeconomic reasons. And there is no plan to help women. I mean, aside from not having nationalized health care, we are the also only country without paid national maternity leave. Yeah, it's, it's, it's astonishing. And you think about the social impacts of that. But let, let's dig into a few few other topics. You, you talked about communication. You've recorded over 200,000 patient interactions in a 30-year career to date. What are the most important components of a positive interaction for both patient and doctor? I mean, I always tell people I, I never worked a day in my life. Being a doctor was an immense privilege. You just felt it was, you know, my goodness, I, I get to be there for these people at this time of need. It's Huge privilege. So tell us about that, the important components of a positive interaction. 
My patients know that I always wear jeans and a scrub top. I sit in a room, I cross my legs, and I lean back and say, Hey, Deborah, tell me what the story is. Tell me how I can help you. It's the communication. So as a male OBGYN, I think that when people are looking for an OBGYN on the internet, I posted an article one time saying that I'm the fourth choice because for women, it's important for many, it's important that they pick female. So I, my article said, first choice is white female, followed by non-white female, followed by white male, then the rest of us. <laughs> there are some truths to that because rarely I would have patients coming in because my name is Pyongyang Chun. They're coming to my office and say, hey, do you speak English? And I kind of like laugh and say, yes, I do. As a male OBGYN, I've always had a busy practice. And my key to my success has always been a communication. From the very first moment I was done with my residency, back when cell phone was just coming out, I gave out my pager number. Right now, all my patients have my mobile number. It's the communication. So how do I make a female patient comfortable? It's just by walking into the exam room, I never carry a laptop, I never type anything, I never write anything. I look at the white of my patient and we talk and figure out how can I help you. So that approach has worked so that I have patients from 70 plus countries coming to my office. Uh, at least a quarter of my patients come from other states. And I ask why do they come for my service it's because I think my patients know that I care. Above all, I care. I don't know what kind of insurance they have. I don't know anything. All I know is they come to me with a problem. My job is to see if I can be of help. And that's the attitude I had when I was applying to medical school because I, I wanted to help people. And I have been so lucky to have this amazing career and 200 plus thousand office visits and it's you know i have patients i've seen for 20 plus years and now i'm seeing their daughters for office visits and it as you said because i take this as a privilege above all i'm always happy working and every patient is a new challenge and when I'm in town and not traveling, I deliver all my patients. And because of that approach, people have traveled far for my care. Because something to be said about looking after patients over 14, 16, 20 visits and being with them towards at the end and be part of that amazing, miraculous event called the birth of your little one. To be part of that, it's like I'm overjoyed. So I've been the same for past 30 some years. And I think patients can tell that. So I think this is maybe this uh, was a component of, because um, you told me um, before we, we spoke that you've got inside information on women's healthcare with 200,000 interactions, hardly surprising. Enlighten us about your inside information. I guess what I meant by that is just, I get a lot of requests for finding pay, uh, physicians. I mean, 
pay, people from all over the country, they send me a zip code, they send me five numbers. Based on that, I search and look for right match. It's not somebody with 505 star rating, but I look for educational background and the training background, as well as I read all the reviews and I can kind of tell identifying people who I would send my daughter to or my family member to, because I think you agree when we refer patients to our colleagues, you want that person to be clinically competent and be a nice person. And it's really hard for people to figure out who to go to. If you just move to Boston, how do you find someone to go to, especially for uh, OBGYN? So that particular comment was about me figuring out, understanding what my colleagues are like. I work out of a rather affluent community hospital north of Boston. And if the question was, would I send my patient, refer my patients to all my colleagues in my department? And the answer is no, maybe one out of 10, because I know them. And that's kind of like what I meant. Yeah. Okay. So I've talked to, to other doctors about this topic. And I'd, I'd really welcome your perspective. Menopause, it's still a taboo subject in many circles. Why is that, especially when it's such a universal experience? And what can we do to make women more comfortable in sharing their experiences of the, the, the change of menopause? The first thing I tell my patients is that we're trying to go against mother nature. Because mother nature says around 50 for most women. The function of ovaries slow down to stop completely and then you're supposed to deal with the consequences but we don't live forever so i tell my patients you know we can only worry so much about what may happen with certain regimen hormone replacement therapy down the road while i think it's important to address the concerns i think for many hormone replacement therapy is an option, particularly not just what I write a prescription for. I also believe in compound pharmacy, which means I can work with a handful of pharmacies around Boston where I, based on patients' symptoms as well as lab results, I can put together a particular regimen to address her need, and that requires a patient finding just the right provider and hearing a problem and being patient to work out a regimen over a few weeks to months. The problem is that type of care is not economically sound, meaning it takes too much time. Talking takes time. So a lot of primary care physicians, internal medicine, family physicians, and a lot of OBGYNs I feel like they're always looking for reason not to prescribe hormone replacement therapy. Hormone replacement therapy for patients without contraindications for short term is a real option. It should not, I mean, if there were, you know, the same thing with men for our eject, uh, the erectile dysfunction, we have so many options, right? I mean, but for women, there's none. I mean, there are a few that's available, but they don't work. So I have many patients, I prescribe hormone replacement therapy. Each one of them requires 
good amount of time understanding what their symptoms are and educating patients that while there are risks, it's reasonable risks versus benefits. And I always say, you know, think about all the car accidents there are on a daily basis. We drive every day. And I always say the risk, potential risk from hormone replacement therapy is much lower than potential risk of a car accident, any harm that comes with driving every day. So there are options and we need to educate women that there are options and not shy away from getting rid of that hot flash to vaginal dryness to pain and discomfort with intercourse as you go beyond uh, the age of 50. I mean, and also women are living longer than ever. So we're talking about 20, 30 years after menopause. It is so important to address that hormonal need. And patients who get it, they come, they understand. And look, I, I have a patient who's over 80. She's been on hormone replacement therapy for years. You should see her penmanship. It's better than my handwriting. And she's over 80. And she will tell you it's that hormone she's been taking for 20 some years. Hmm. Hmm. So the first topic we discussed was, was issues with, with obstetrics, with cesarean section rates and so on and so forth. But on your website, you've got a section entitled Six Reasons Why Women's Healthcare is a Disaster. Was that one of them? Uh, and if not, well, look, tell us about it. Tell us about six reasons why women's healthcare is a disaster. The reasons that I record, um, I stated, include the lack of national health care, lack of maternity leave, women's health being under-researched, as well as having politicians who do not represent women. Only 27% of U.S. Congress is represented by women. Only one out of three of all public offices are held by women. So just by that alone, not enough women are speaking for women. And then you have drug companies where the United States is only one of two countries along with New Zealand where there's direct consumer marketing is allowed. So you can talk about medication with very shaky data, but it gets approved. And now you have famous celebrity talking about something for migraine headache. That is allowed, but we cannot talk about CBD in any form. You can talk about this new app called DraftKings, which is gambling app that is allowed in Massachusetts on TV, which can cause harms with addiction, but we cannot talk about natural supplement. So again, this all has to do with money. And we have insurance companies dictating what medication is covered and what is not. You take birth control pill with X amount of estrogen progesterone, which may have worked really well for Debbie, but now there's a genetic version. The genetic version, the inactive ingredients may be different, therefore causing different reaction to different people. But between insurance companies and pharmacies, a brand name that was covered, now it's converted to generic. And that's without telling the patient, that's without telling me. Again, why? It's about money. And then I had mentioned shortage of physicians. We don't have enough OBGYNs. 
I mean, your technology with robotic surgery is great. You know what's the biggest problem with robotic surgery? There aren't enough surgeons. You don't have enough robotic GYN surgeons for this amazing technology. As a 62-year-old man, I should not be a leading robotic surgeon. I'm 62. It should be someone who's 40. Because people have to really understand the future of surgery is robotic. You know, how amazing is that for me to do a complicated hysterectomy by myself using Da Vinci? It's amazing with a blood loss of 10 or 15 cc's. But we don't have enough surgeons. So while the technology is advancing, because of poor medical education and training plan, we don't have enough younger generations to really fully appreciate the latest technology. And if you combine all those problems together, we are in trouble because there is no help coming. It's really individuals like myself and others trying to yell, scream, and let people know we have a problem, here are things we could do, really about educating the public. And I'm going to try to do that one at a time through podcasts as well as through other social media platforms. So you mentioned uh, cannabidiol, CBD, an active ingredient from the cannabis plant in women's healthcare. In fact, you set up your own company, Women's Only Organics, or Woo, which focuses, that's a great name, which focuses on natural doctor-formulated substance, uh, supplements. CBD has been proposed as a cure-all. Lots of people discussing it, marketing it for everything from, I don't know, alopecia to back pain to Lord knows what. Talk to us about CBD, how and in what conditions it works and where you find that it, that it helps patients. So I, for years, I've been prescribing medications, including SSRI for anxiety and depression. And many of us know that SSRI for anxiety and depression is oversimplification. It cannot be a simple one chemical imbalance or serotonin imbalance causing all this problem because we don't really understand our brain well enough to say it must be one particular marker. And I have noticed that one out of four, maybe as many as one out of three of my patients are taking these medications and many of them are having side effects such as weight gain, decreased libido, and other problems. And then there's issue with obesity. So I became a student of CBD and I became very fortunate to find the relationship with a lab, one of the best labs in the country, which makes CBD with homegrown cannabis and really understood what this could be. So let's say we have a patient who needs something for her anxiety and depression. Currently, I mean, you may have done this. Which one do I prescribe? Is that Paxil, Zoloft, Prozac? What do I do? Because for the first two to four weeks, it's not going to work. Yet there are a lot of side, side effects. It may be two, three months before we identify just the right regimen. That versus CBD, which could work within days with minimal side effects. And because the country is so large and lack of providers, Many patients, even if they want something, they cannot get an appointment. So I wanted to see, could this 
replace and address emotional health as well as weight control, pain, insomnia, and whatnot. So it turns out, yes, it can. And we've had great success with one, um, taking a particular combination of CBD. Women are losing four to six pounds a month. That's one. And also I have many patients who's been able to replace medication like Zoloft with CBD gummy for insomnia, as well as for pain with uh, topical. So the question became, can I come up with something for women without having to worry about side effects, without needing a prescription, with a reasonable cost anywhere in the country? And the answer was simple, it's CBD. I just had to make sure it's from a good source because the biggest problem with CBD is like sushi. You know, sushi, I love sushi, but you're not gonna have sushi from gas station. You're only gonna get sushi from a nice, reliable Japanese restaurant, right? Same thing. The source has to be just the right. And I feel comfortable promoting this as an alternative to prescription drugs. Um, FDA, the fact that almost half of FDA budget comes from drug companies' user fees, which is the fee that drug companies and FDA negotiate to launch a new drug. I'm thinking, okay, especially after OxyContin and everything else, you know, we live in a country where we have, we have only one drug that is approved by the um, FDA for CBD. It's a CBD isolate Epidiolex for rare form of a juvenile seizure. That's the only one that's available. And the cost is about $30,000 a year. Same CBD could be gotten from another source for a fraction of their cost and probably do the same thing. So again, it's trying to, I'm trying to fill voids, empty places. How do I, you know, trying to tell people you can't get a, a doctor's appointment for your medication for depression. Maybe we try this, especially after postpartum. Women who are not breastfeeding are wanting to do something. This has been a very useful option. Hmm. Yeah, it's a, it, it's a very pragmatic approach. Um, I commend you for it. So I want to switch topics a little bit. I was always told that it was impolite to, to discuss politics, religion, or sex. But these are the meaty topics, the things I think we have discussed. I lived half my life in America, and I saw politics pick and stick with certain topics, one of which is abortion. Republicans against, Democrats for. Access to abortion was facilitated by the very famous Roe v. Wade decision. I doubt many Americans do not know that term of uh, famous uh, Supreme Court decision in the United States. But once again, the states and courts have become engaged in women's bodies making it difficult for women to obtain an abortion. While many countries are expanding abortion rights, uh, Chile, uh, South Korea, and even the Republic of Ireland blew me away, um, for the benefit of the non-American audience, can you talk us through this issue and where you stand on it? I trained at Old Boston City Hospital. My entire intern year, five days a week, Every morning, we as an intern, we did first trimester abortions. 
twice a week with the second trimester abortions. I believe as a board certified OBGYN, my job is to support women. And it's each woman is entitled to her own decision. It is not me, it is not the government. And I am pro-choice. And I think that the decision each woman makes to go through this procedure, I always tell each one of them it's one of the most courageous decisions they will ever make because they will never be the same, but they are making the right decision for herself at the moment. And it is my job as her provider to make sure that happens. Because of what happened recently, again, it's gonna affect women because half the training programs for OBGYNs in the country will not be getting abortion training, which is the same DNC we do routinely for miscarriage as well as other indications. And it's not always straightforward. It's the procedure is simple, yet if you do the procedure right, it allows you to appreciate the anatomy, understand the size, the length, the, the way the uterus is pointing, allows you to do that blind procedure correctly. It is the beginning, the very first part of your GUIN surgery training. Now, half the country are not going to get the training. Again, it's going to affect women because uh, somebody may be bleeding to death with miscarriage and her provider is not doing the procedure correctly. Maybe he or she perps the uterus. So there's a consequence of this decision. It's not just about not having the procedure available. And as a, uh, somebody who was raised by a single mother, who I think that when I, when I was growing up, I think she had this procedure done. And I give her, I'm glad because at the time, we were already living in public housing and I think she did what she could. It was the right decision for her. And somebody in this country living in certain states, that is not an option. It's such a big decision. The decision is not mine. It's hers, hers only. And she should have that option without worrying about the consequences. We're going backwards. This is a part of overall woman's health current state that is so messed up. I wish I could tell you we have something coming up that's going to fix all these problems. It's not. It's only going to get worse. What this means is these options are only going to be available to those who have resources. It's going to, again, penalize women of color yet again. It's a very complicated issue. It's something that a lot of people don't feel comfortable talking about, but I, from the very first day as an intern, I knew what my role was. I knew what my duty was. It is not to ask why, but just to make sure it's done correctly. And it's, it's really shame on us for making this so much harder for women. Yeah, that's interesting. It's, uh, it's a difficult, difficult topic to discuss because people, I, you know, I loved America. I really did. I became an American citizen. But unfortunately, this is a little bit off topic, but I think it's germane. It seems that people there can no longer disagree without being disagreeable. Yes. Um, yeah. And the fact that this has become a party political issue and not a vote of conscience or, or attitude 
You can't have intelligent debate about it. My goodness, as clinicians, as academics, as scientists, as people committed to improving the human condition, we, we have an obligation to discuss things and to work out the right thing to do. And listen, if there's a doctor who doesn't want to perform terminations of pregnancy, so be it. But interfering in this way is only going to drive abortion underground with dire consequences for patients. So an another topic that fascinated me, you're a fascinating bloke, Bill, but you created Doc and Doula to empower women, to enable every expectant parent to have a healthy birth experience, right? Yes. And, and a mate of mine was telling me that when his wife was pregnant, he read, he, he lives uh, in the Antipodes and he got a book called You're Pregnant Too, Mate. Um, <laughs> And, and, and doulas for everyone, which enables those on lower incomes to access doula services. There may be some people who are listening who don't know what a doula is and how they can help during such an important and incredible event. So, uh, Professor Chun, tell us, talk about doulas. In its simplest definition, a doula is a non-clinician whose job is to make a pregnant woman's pregnancy labor and delivery and postpartum into a positive experience. And it's that simple. And this got started during pandemic because I have my own set of patients, but I've been hearing all these horror stories about not having adequate support or clinicians who are nudging or forcing people into induction and inappropriate management. So. I became familiar with the doula when I was at Boston City Hospital many years ago. And I had, I've been working with a few colleagues where they had their own agency where they would charge Debbie X amount of dollars to support her during pregnancy, labor and delivery and postpartum. And I thought, you know what we need to do is we need to really let people know that this concept exists. And then we're gonna start a Facebook and allow people to chip in. And that's exactly what I did. And then I realized, at least in Boston, doulas charge anywhere from 1200 to 1500 some 2500 It's still it's a lot of money. There are many women who could use the support, but they didn't have the means. So I started a nonprofit called Doulas for Everyone, where it's active here in Massachusetts and Tennessee. So if a person who wants a doula cannot afford it, then we asked the person to come up with $300 and I matched $300. So a doula gets $600. So it's not as much as going rate, but still enough to show her appreciation. And the patient gets the benefit of having a, a doula. I think this doula concept is what we need because in a country where 88% of births are attended by physicians, 12% by midwives, little under 1% home birth. I don't see anything that says we're gonna increase the number of OBGYN residents or number of midwives. I think what we need to do is promote doula concept. Unfortunately, doula, they're, they're gonna go through some growing pain because you could be a certified doula after weekend course or you could go through a, an amazing program in Colorado which is much more extensive. So not everyone is the same. But streamlining doula training and education program into something that could be replicated in different states, I think, is the way to fill the void for many women because you need additional voice during pregnancy, during labor and delivery. 
um, a physician could come in and say, hey, you know, you've been pushing for two hours and I think we need to do a C-section. That person, if she had a doula, maybe they can say, hey, can I have another 30 minutes, for example? Or maybe the physician is trying to force epidural when patient is doing really well with a hot tub. So there are many ways that a doula can support pregnant and laboring patient. It's and unlike physician or, or, or midwife, the educational background that is needed to do this is very limited. So anyone can really do it if one had passion for it, which means it could possibly be a profession for some people to make a good living, but most importantly, to serve women. We need more doulas. Everyone should have a doula. And it's, um, it's a fascinating topic. So I started Doc and Doula with Facebook. Now on Instagram, it, I mean, as soon as I open a Q&A, I get all these questions asked and I'm saying, whoa, these are questions you should be asking your own provider. And again, I see that there's a lack of communication between providers and patients because they are turning to a stranger on internet for answers yeah. rather than her own doctor or midwife. Well, I, I think we'll, we'll have to put some more details about uh, where people can access more information in the show notes. I've got two questions left. The first, I guess, is a continuation of that. You've got a program called Ask Bill, providing a service that you call a virtual component of your support team during pregnancy and birth. Tell us what that offers and benefits and so on and so forth. So since, we, since that came about, that's going to be integrated into Instagram. So basically, I wanted to make myself available for questions and answers. So it's, it was modified so that I'm available for Q&A on a daily basis. And I'll be creating trimester-specific content for women. It's really having access to me, which I think is the key. Yeah, the, um, I quoted this before, the famous physician Sir William Osler at Johns Hopkins said that a good physician should be able, it's pretty obvious, affable and available. And I, I agree with you. I used to give my patients my phone number and, and I'm not aware that they used it very often, but uh, um, I don't recall that. But, you know, it, it was like a security blanket. So, Bill, I've got yeah. one final question for you. If a magic genie granted you three wishes in your field of healthcare, what would they be? Number one, I would make medical school, nursing, and midwifery education free. So anyone who's interested will get the education without worrying about the finance. We need to change the obstetrical model from physician-driven to midwifery-driven. And the last one, I would say, that's a tough one. Last one, I, I guess I would say it's related to the first one and you may appreciate this, I think doctors in training, um, doctors training program needs to be revisited. It needs to be longer. At least in OBGYN should not be four years. I think it should be five or longer for typical general OBGYN. But the lifestyle needs to be improved because doctors in training need to be paid more rather than having to live with the in-laws or sharing apartment because they're barely making it. So they're First and third were kind of related. Yeah, it's, uh, listen, there's a lot of social challenges facing us in, in medicine and societies. 
have to make decisions about what they want. Um, and like I say, you have to be able to have a sensible debate about these things. Society has to decide, do we want, does, is healthcare, is healthcare part of the agenda or is it uh, a nice to have, not a got to have? Sadly, that's all we've got time for today. I want to thank our lovely guests for taking the time to talk to us. Dr. Bill Chon, thanks for doing this. And frankly, all you're doing to champion women's health care, I think any woman hearing this is going to go, huh, I'm going to revisit my fourth choice. I'm going to make Bill Chun my first choice. <laughs> thank you, doctor. <laughs> You're a gent. Folks, please check out our archives. There's plenty more fantastic uh, conversations in there. And subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Tell your friends, like us on social media, shout it from the rooftops. And please join us. Join us next week for another fascinating episode. Until then, I'm Dr. Jonathan Sackier, and thank you for listening to the EMJ podcast. Please stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Bye for now. <laughs>